Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Today we're talking with Luke. Luke remembers that day in January of 2016 pretty vividly. He was 23 years old, recently graduated from college with a degree in engineering, had his whole life ahead of him. On that particular day, he was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and he went into a Subway fast food restaurant and bought a couple bottles of water. He was feeling very sick, and he knew exactly why he was sick, and it wasn't food poisoning. He knew that the awful feeling in his gut was because a little rubber packet had burst inside his stomach and some very high-quality cocaine was now flooding into his insides. Shortly after this happened, he would be in a coma and he was in that comatose state for 10 days. As you might imagine, Luke has a pretty interesting story to tell and we talked about every detail. He told me about why he made the decision to travel to Panama in order to smuggle cocaine into the U.S., how he researched it and planned the whole process, even though he'd never done anything like this before, what it was like to be in a coma, and what it was like to come out of a coma, and then the next sort of chapter in his big adventure, going to prison, and how he was able to get through that. What you're going to notice about Luke is that he's no dummy. He's very intelligent and well-spoken, And he has a really positive outlook on life. He has a lot of confidence in himself and his abilities. And although usually self-confidence is a good character trait, in this case, it was partly to blame for him making the bad decision to make some quick money. He figured high risk, high reward. But he also did as much as he could to minimize that risk. But it just didn't work out the way he expected it to. This was a fun conversation, and I definitely learned a few things, and I think you will too. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Luke. Luke, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. First question right off the bat. I'm just really curious about this. Sure. What does it feel like when a balloon of cocaine 
just bursts or breaks in your stomach? <laughs> See, that's a that's a hard question to answer because it first you're not even entirely sure why it happened or what the problem is. You're just feeling incredibly sick. Um, whenever I first started to feel it, I just felt my side start to shake violently. And I mean, I had done enough research at the time to recognize that there was the possibility that the packages could get jammed up within your intestines and then eventually free up. And that's a, and that could be a possible problem. And that by freaking out immediately, you could end up turning yourself in when it was completely unnecessary. And so I chilled out for a little bit knowing something was wrong. But whenever the dry heaving started to get violent enough, I recognized that there was probably a serious problem involved. And then maybe 15 minutes later, I decided that like I needed to call in the hospital because it was just getting to be too strong for me. Not not something that was going to go away on its own. No, definitely not. I thought about it. And interestingly enough, I went over to a free medical clinic while I was feeling the effects of the cocaine. And I asked them and I was sort of in a panic mode, but I was just like, I really didn't want to call the hospital. And I, I was essentially like, hey, is there anything you guys can do to help me? Like, and I would have gone so far to even like ask if they could have done the surgery on me there without having to go to the hospital. But wow. I, they, the lady there was like, she was freaked out by the whole scenario and I was freaked out and she was probably freaked out because I was freaked out. And so mm -hmm. it, so you it, told her that it was cocaine that had, you told her what happened. I did. I, did. Okay. I told her that I had swallowed cocaine packages and one of them had burst inside of me and I needed to cut out. And I think, she was, again, she was just like some medical like person standing there at the front. She was like a secretary and she's like, we can't do that. Not the like, kind of question they get every day. <laughs> no, definitely not. To this day, she probably right. has no idea what happened to me. Man. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get into all of that and all the details on that, give us a little bit of background on what your thought process was or why you decided to go through and try to, you know, try to make this happen. All right. I mean... I guess the the idea that everyone is able to grasp onto the most is the fact that I did it because I was in massive student loan debt. I went into school under the impression that this is the necessary steps coming out of high school and moved myself into college to essentially earn something that would eventually be an investment that would pay itself off later. So I got into school and I got a degree in petroleum engineering, which was a fantastic degree at the time. And as I was graduating my senior year, I ended up running into a market that went downturn at that particular point in time, right around 2014, 2015. And I was left with six figures of debt and no good way to pay them off because they weren't hiring entry-level engineers because there's just no profit to be made in oil at that particular point in time. And so being left at a point where I felt like I was sort of trapped by my own financial situation, I turned to a fast way that I did not see, especially at that point in time, as having any like immoral implications. And so I took a mode in which I knew that based on the principles of high risk, high reward, I could pull off fairly quickly and get my student loans paid off. Uh, to go into like a deeper version, I mean, maybe if you're interested in that kind of thing, I could give you sort of a deeper idea as to why I got into it. But I think the one that people understand the best is the fact that I just had student loans and I felt very trapped by them. You, you did, so you felt like you really didn't have any other option. Yeah, definitely. It's you work and even at best you're working and making 
on a normal job, $800 a week, at least in my particular scenario, and my student loans are $1,200 a month that they're taking out of everything, to think that I would be able to move out of my parents, get my own place, and start like living off of that, it just didn't make any sense. I mean, it's going to take me 10, 15 years to pay off my student loans and just the way that I'd been living up to that point and being sort of fearful of my own mortality and running out of time, I couldn't bear the idea of sitting around for that long. Running out of time. And what was your age at that time? I was 23. I know. And that's the crazy idea. That's the one that people don't understand quite so well. (laughs) So you were 23 years old and you're thinking, man, I I don't have much time left. I've got to do something. I still do to some degree. I I don't know why I can't get rid of that idea. Well, that's, you know, I think that's a better way to look at it than a lot of people say, oh man, I've got my whole life. I can, there's stuff I want to do, but I've got time. I'll do that later. Right. But you're, you're kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. You get to the end of your 80 years and you look back and you say, what, what happened? Where did it all go? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. To deal with that idea at the end of life, it's not, I don't know. It's just not a possibility for me to do. So you had the, so you came up with the idea that to, to go into another country and get some drugs, cocaine yeah. specifically, yeah, bring it back in, sell it and, and make it pay off. Even that, I think you were planning on this first, this one to, to pay off like, or to get, make like $50,000, right? Right. Right. So that even that wouldn't have paid off the whole debt. No. Just a a big chunk of it. Correct. But that would have put me in a really good spot as far as interest goes, because when obviously you have a large amount, then the interest accrues very quickly. And so that would have at least taken like a chunk out of it to where I felt like I was, it was bearable. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I may have eventually even at that point been like, you know what, one more, one more go and I'm home free. But Depends how it would have went. Clearly, it went poorly. So right, yeah, it didn't um, turn out as as you expected. Right. Yeah. How did you figure out how you were going to do this? I mean, do you have friends that are drug dealers that, or mm-hmm. or you go by what you saw on television, or how did you research this? I mean, well, I've I've used drugs in the past because I'm a very experimental person. I think that life is worth understanding the fringes and. Uh, so I was willing to try certain drugs. And so I knew people and I knew drugs very well, but I didn't use very frequently because I also recognized the value in maintaining your mind. And so I basically did all the research myself. I was not connected with any big time dealers nor the cartel or anything like that. I just thought, I mean, I recognized that I had gotten away with a lot in my past and I maybe was a little bit arrogant with my own intelligence. And so I thought, hey, if other people can do it, I can do it. And so I put in the planning and did the research to try and figure out the safest method of trying to transport it all in one big like go. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, laziness, procrastination, I don't know what it was, but at the very end it beat me. I guess my own my own confidence in myself is ended up being my downfall because I just thought there was no way it would fail. Right. And, you know, in thinking or hearing this, I, I can't help but think I've seen some some of the episodes of this show called Locked Up Abroad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of those people get caught at the airport. I mean, oh, I know. you didn't think that was going to that was a possibility then. Right. Or it was a, a minimal risk that you it were was, willing to take. It was the research that I did. And that's actually the, mo- the reason that I chose the method that I did. There's plenty of ways that you could try and smuggle it in um, with just your material items trying to bring it through the airport. But that's why I went internal is that those scanning devices do not pick up 
in that way. And I did a lot of research on the scanning devices. I obviously wanted to avoid dogs and them being able to smell. Um, and so can the dogs smell, even if it's internal? No. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to go okay. internally as well. Okay. But I mean, a lot of people ask, why didn't I go up the other way? And it just, <laughs> I don't know. It, I guess I, it, it wasn't really my style. And so I figured that this was going to be the way as well, that it would allow me the biggest gap of time between I can enter them in my body and that they would need to exit. And that would right. give me plenty of time on the flight and I wouldn't need to, I don't know, it just wouldn't be as much pressure. Right. Okay. All right. So how did you start this process or what, how did you plan it and do it? Well, I mean, I guess I first got the idea. I was traveling around in Peru and I recognized how inexpensive it was down there. For example, like you can't, you can't get anything in the North that's very pure at all. And so you're down in Peru and even the most impure stuff up in Ohio or anything North of there is going to be like, it's cut all the way entirely down and it still costs a hundred dollars a gram and you could get it for $10 a gram in Peru. So at that point it started like got my mind rolling and recognized the investment is a massive payoff. And so from there, I just always entertained that idea in my mind and it just slowly turned into the point where once I started paying all my student loans, it just got like it started to build and grow and eventually became to a point where I like forced I felt like I needed to do it. Right. And you decided on what country? Was it Panama? Well, I actually was originally thinking about Colombia, but I chose not to go to Colombia because one, I didn't feel like the traveling was as good there. I love traveling. And two, it was a place in which a lot of people the Customs would be stricter coming from Colombia, and they are experienced with having drugs come in from that particular country. And so I figured I'd go to the one right next to it that's a little bit less regulated, but would allow me to travel through a bunch of countries on the way down, which was Panama. And so you get just tell us, take us through the process. You get you you show yeah. up in Panama, and what do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I would manage as a white kid to come down there with no connections and try and pull off something like this. And I spent a lot of time thinking it and f about it throughout my travels. I ended up going from Mexico all the way down to Panama through Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and then Panama. And at that time, I was trying to get a feel for the people there and how I would connect with them to be able to get their trust to be able to do it. Um, how I ended up doing it was I essentially, without getting too much details, got from him or I picked up from him, the guy that I met at a music festival in Panama in very, very small increments and never really gave him a final amount. That way he would not rob me knowing, okay, he's wanting to get 300 grams. Let's just take it all from him one fell swoop and instead would get it when small started small and got larger and larger and larger until the point where I had the amount that I needed and then just sort of disappeared. Never knew his name, never knew his contact for the reason that I wanted to protect myself in him. Okay. And what, over what period of time did you accumulate the full amount? It was about six days. It was, oh. I think, yeah, I think we had six or seven days there. And that was part of it as well as I wanted to, maybe in the first day or two, we went to the music festival and I met the guy. And then the subsequent times I would basically give him a name and, or I'm sorry, a location in the city that was public. A started out with a color of shirt for him to wear so that I could recognize him. And then, yeah, like I said, the date, the time, and 
the amount that I needed. And I told him that I was always going to test it and I was always going to weigh it. And every single time I'd meet up with him and I'd give him a new name location or a new place location and um, same thing, I guess, but place, time and date. And we'd redo the entire thing over again throughout the course of those six days or whatever it was. So he was probably pretty happy to have you as a regular customer. Oh, week. for sure. Because I was showing up with American cash consistently. Mm-hmm. He didn't exactly want to lose that either. He robs me one time and who knows how much he would have lost out on. Right, right. Because he didn't know when it was going to end or if no. it was going to end. Of yeah. course, of course. So how much money did you spend overall in that six days on cocaine? It was. It ended up being around $2,000. It equated to $7 a gram. So I ended up total with 285 grams. It wasn't quite 300 grams. It was 285, um, which is close to, that's right around 10 ounces. And at that point in time, um, I knew that it was so cheap. I had worked enough and I had money. And so I paid him then knowing that if I could just get it back to the States, that the investment would be far worth it. Right. So did you buy a little package of balloons or what, what did you put it in? Yeah, that was actually um that was actually one of the key factors in the downfall of the whole thing is I put some thought into packaging it correctly, but the thing is online, especially when I'd done my research previously, there just wasn't enough information on how to do it correctly because obviously it's not something that people ever do. And so I chose a method in which I thought it was close enough, but was just kind of hoping for the best. And I put them in the fingers of a latex glove and would push the cocaine down in and tack it as tight as I could, tie it off, take a dab of super glue and put the put a dab on the end to hold the, the knot shut. And then I'd take it and I'd dip it in hot glue and then cool it off and try and make sure that there wasn't any uh, like frays on the hot glue that could poke holes in other bags. And then from there, I originally I did that and I dropped it in a mock acidic solution of muriatic acid, which your your stomach is basically um, it's hydrochloric acid. But I tripled the pH level of it in order to basically create something that I knew the stomach acid wouldn't be able to eat away. And I started with not cocaine. I started with powdered sugar and then I'd leave I left them in there for three days while I was collecting the cocaine to try and make sure that whenever I pulled them out, there wasn't like any holes or anything eating through it. And at that point in time, there wasn't. And so I knew I, I could push the limit from there mm-hmm. and then I'd be okay. So how many bags did you have to create? I created 48 of them. 48. I basically just okay. tried to, and that was the weird thing as well is that at the time I wasn't sure how big of something I could swallow. And so I was, especially because I didn't know how many layers I was going to put on it. And so I tried to basically make something the size of what I believed I could swallow if I had to. And I basically would just use as many as I, as I needed to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And then I would adjust my timing from there. And it ended up that for that 285 grams, I needed 48 packages, which ends up being around $6 or six grams a package. Like obviously some were bigger, some were smaller. And so to so we can picture this yeah one, one of these little bags was the size of what like it was in comparison with an an, an object maybe, that we would know about maybe if you cut your thumb right at the knuckle the tail end of it mm-hmm. at its thickest part and basically like a cylinder around that size okay 
That's still a, it. that's still a pretty good sized thing to swallow. Oh yeah, it's much bigger than any horse bill you've ever seen, and uh-huh. it was hard to get them down. It was real hard. Uh, it did was you drink again, a lot of water. Or? I did. I had to. Is okay. I originally try. I tried some different methods. I tried to oil it up and swallow it, but I couldn't get the oil wouldn't it wouldn't allow like my my um I guess my esophagus to grasp onto it, and they mm. keep popping up, and that oh. was me gag and so i just took water and i'm like whatever i'll fill my stomach with as many as i can get and mm-hmm. this was we were late for our flight at this point and so i'm like rushing to put all 48 of these things down which was not the proper way to do it but i'm just taking a water bottle and essentially shoving it and forcing it down uh it was it hurt bad right when it'd get down into the entryway to your stomach because it felt like it narrow some and looking back at some of the anatomy of the of uh the human digestive system it actually does decrease in size right there and so it was especially mm-hmm. painful right before they'd enter into the stomach well it's the same idea as just eating food too much yeah. too fast right yeah exactly it's it crowded down there yeah it does so so that was so the reason you had to do it so quickly was because you were running late for your flight right and and did it occur to you maybe take the next flight or go the next day <laughs> or? it did but once you get that first one in you like, oh I then mean, now you're, the clock then is you're going but i um, mean I could have taken the next flight and done all that kind of stuff, but it would have just delayed the entire process. And um, I thought that I would still have had enough time in my flight. I mean, I knew I was really pushing it, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, it kind of boiled down to the fact that I really hadn't gotten caught for anything in my past right. or nothing serious anyways. And I was very confident in my ability to pull things off last minute to try and wing it and still survive. All right. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni, She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? 
It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what code 25 what do you just as an aside do you still have that same level of confidence now in your abilities or skills or anything i don't know it's like i i think it's still yes yes it's still very high Mm -hmm. um my parents oftentimes joke that they somehow made us kids so confident because it's it kind of exists within my siblings as well but i tend to be the one who pushes things further than anybody else no really yeah right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I look back and I recognize that I'm, I'm definitely mortal and I recognize that I can't pull everything off, but I still have a lot of confidence. Obviously, I'm transferring that confidence mm-hmm. into legal ways, but it, mm-hmm. I have not become a timid individual, I guess I'll say from this experience. Mm, okay. So you got on the plane. Okay. No problems. You, you, and you landed, where did you land in the U.S.? I, uh, I landed into Fort Lauderdale Okay. and once I got out, I was kind of hoping that I'd just get to a hotel right away, but the taxi driver was taking me all over the place and I wasn't able to get there as quickly as I wanted to. And then when I got there, like it was going to be an expensive hotel, but I had really no other option. Right. And how, how, how long before you would expected the, uh, bags to start exiting? I'm going to start exiting in the next like three hours, three or four hours, because my flight, I believe by the time it was all said and done, by the time they entered and it was gone, it was like in between four and five hours. And generally from what I'd read, I still believe it's correct. It takes about eight hours for things to enter and then start to exit through your digestive system. Okay. Um, and so I kind of planned it out for that reason. And hmm. whenever I got there, it didn't take long before I got to the hotel that one of them actually burst in my stomach. So there was still some in my stomach, but there was definitely some down in my intestines from the doctors that had to cut them out of my intestinal system. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. you, no, I, I thought I read somewhere that you were in a subway restaurant when this happened. No. And that's like a common confusion. I was by a subway and okay. it was by like, Oh wait. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was by a subway restaurant. Um, when, all of it went down. And I'm sorry, I think the confusion is generally people think that I was in a subway, like in a subway subway. Underground. Oh, no, no. I, I knew it was a restaurant, but I thought okay, you were in the yeah. restaurant. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Yeah, no, I actually did go into the restaurant temporarily. Whenever they first, like, whenever I first started to dry heave, I knew I needed to get out of the, the hotel. I was standing there in the lobby and it was, it was bad. And the hotel clerk receptionist is like, do you need me to call the hospital? Cause it was really bad. I couldn't even talk to her. And I'm like, no, no. And I basically just rushed out. I went over to the subway across the street because I was afraid that these packages being the size that they were would end up in my esophagus and start choking me and being by myself. It was not a good scenario. 
And so I went into the subway, managed to maintain myself enough to buy a couple giant bottles of water, and then went outside into the parking lot and sat down because I was just feeling so terrible. At that point in time is like right when I started, like the effects of the cocaine started to come on. And it, if you felt that at all, it's like a rush to start off with, but it was simultaneously combined with the mental uh, degradation and like the depression that I immediately went into knowing what the results of that speed were. And so it's like, you're coming up physically, but you're coming down mentally so quickly at the same time. that it's just a very, very bad feeling. Your brain's going a hundred miles an hour and you don't really, you don't know what option to take just yet. Knowing that the more time that you wait, the more risky it is that your life's going to end, but not wanting to turn yourself in so quickly that it, like you, you mess it up that it was just like, for whatever reason, a placebo, or it was, um, it could have, you could have outlasted it. Like it was just a small leak or whatever it was. And so I just had a balancing point in which I waited, but try not to wait too long. So what's the last thing you remember? Do you remember going to the hospital? Yeah, I, I called the, I called for an ambulance and they asked me, why do you need an ambulance? I was like, I just need one, please. Can you come here? And of course the cops show up, they don't know what's going on. And I explain it to them and they're out there trying to question me sitting on the sidewalk with my backpack and not letting me get into the ambulance yet. They, I assume that they thought that I was just a kid who was overdosing on cocaine and that they didn't recognize the seriousness of my situation like I did. And so I kept trying to get into this ambulance and they kept trying to just have me like explain things a little further because I was maintaining myself just in such a way that I knew I needed to get to the hospital to be able to get the surgeon some of this information to the nurses and the doctors or they wouldn't be able to save me probably. Um, and so I maintained my composure and I think that's part of the reason why they didn't want me to go right away. But eventually I just was adamant. I said, I got to go, I got to get in the hospital. And I climbed up into the ambulance and I'm like, okay. And once I got into the hospital, I was, I had texted actually, uh, some of the people that were very close to me and kind of explained what happened. And interestingly enough, later on in the, in the hospital, I, basically had told them not to tell my parents because they were in India at the time. And I was feeling so terrible about that. I just, I don't know. I somehow thought I could still get myself out of it. And so they put me under an alias in the hospital, which made it extremely difficult for my parents to find me later mm. on. I bet. Yeah. yeah. But the last thing I guess to circle back, the last thing I remember was after I got in the hospital and the detective came and he questioned me and asked me why I did it. And I explained why I did it. Um, after that whole thing went down and I puked some of the packages out, I it got too strong for me because I felt like I was going insane. And so I turned to the doctors and the nurses and the detective and I was just like, please don't let me die. And that's all. That's the last thing I remember. So they knew at that point that you had swallowed all this cocaine. And yes. So the, at that point, you'd, you'd given up saying, okay, whatever happens, yeah. at least I don't want to die. Yes, that's essentially what it boiled down to. It's you, you try and defend yourself and you and you die or you open up like a book and you survive. Right. And I think because I was able to open up and not and sort of let it all go at that point in time that that's how they were able to save me. And did you pass out on your own at that point or did they put you under some kind of anesthesia or what happened then? I think from the the ple- or the the reports, I believe they, I passed out on my own. Um, I don't think that they recognized it was as critical as it was. And from the medical reports that I did read, it's eventually I passed out from the cocaine. 
Okay. And that's when they recognized like things were getting really bad in my system. And then they eventually like were regulating it all and went into surgery eventually. Mm -hmm. While while you were passed out, they, they went in and surgically removed all of this cocaine. Yes. Okay. Yes. Obviously the balloons, the balloons they could, they could take out easily because they could spot them and remove them. But Mm -hmm. what about the one that was already broken? I mean, that, that would already be in your system in your bloodstream, right? Right. From what I saw from the medical reports, I puked out 32 of the packages. So that left another oh, 16 that's quite in my a few system. Yeah, it was. And I was awake for that. It, they were all coming out and the detective was there and he did a cocaine analysis right on the packages that were in the, in the bucket, the blue bucket that I puked it all into. He must have loved his job that day. <laughs> oh, yeah, for real. <laughs> but I think he, he, from his police report, it was, it was kind of an interesting one because at some point he, he was like, okay, I'm finished up. I, I can go now. And he started to walk out and I asked him if he'd stay with me because the nurses and the doctors weren't sitting in there at that point in time. And I didn't want to be left alone. And so he did, he came and he sat down next to me and we continued to talk until more people came in the room because I just was so inside my own head at that point in time, I couldn't bear to be alone. And so he actually stayed with me and he was, he talked it out with me. So I think he, it was definitely a weird day for him. I'll bet. Yeah. But a nice guy. Yeah. Very. I'm thankful for that. Mm -hmm. How long were you out? It ended up being a total of like 10 days. So I obviously was, I think I was in an, I was in an induced coma and I, they kept me under in that way because they weren't sure that I was going to be able to like wake up. All right. And that like my body needed to heal itself and from the surgery and everything. And so when I did wake up, my parents were there and I still had the tube down my throat, the intubation tube. And my hands were cupped around these, these aluminum something or others, but basically it kept me from hitting anything or hurting myself. Cause previously, apparently they tried to wake me up and onto a different medication and I woke up and turned pretty violent. And so when I woke up, I was okay. It was just a lot to deal with. It was my parents standing over top of me crying and it, me not entirely sure why I had like why I was in there. I knew why I was in there, but it was like mixed in with all these other dream states that I had while I was in the coma. And so the coming out of that process was one of the wildest things I've ever experienced. It was a mental journey well, by t- far. T- tell us about that. What I mean, so you were you were in a in a, in a coma for ten days, but yeah, were you? Did you still have any sense of anything that was going on? Could you hear people or anything? Yeah, actually, I could hear people, but it wasn't like it was mixed into your dreams, as if like, and I say dreams, but they were very lucid. Like I reckon I remember them even to this day, as if they were like memories, but. Yes, I do remember hearing my parents at one point in time. It was mixed in with a time in which I thought that I was in like a a sort of purgatory. I'm not a religious person, but it felt as if like that's what it was. And then I was walking around the hospital and there was just a bunch of other people that were dead as well. Um, Those entire states I could talk about for hours, but they are, again, it'd be sort of like telling somebody your dream. They're very real to you and they induce emotion to you, but to others, they just seem like sort of random information, just like events happening all over the place. And a lot of them were really, really good, like almost like emotionally inducing in the way that you'd see enlightenment to be. 
Hmm. As if you understood everything about the universe and then others were absolutely horrific in which you knew something was terrible or you felt like you were insane and you couldn't get rid of it. If you had the opportunity now under controlled conditions to be put into an induced coma again for a period of time, a few days or mm-hmm. longer, would you do that just to experience again, it again? Again, I'm a very experimental person and so probably, but I, I I do believe that I'd handle it far better. It was obviously a brand new event for me at the time and it wasn't a chosen one, but yeah, I mean, it, I'm not sure that if it happened again, that I would have similar memories and states like I did to start off like that I did the first time, because obviously I was in there for 10 days. Who knows if these individual memory states were like, dreams that were only like 15 minutes long but felt like an eternity within the within the uh, coma right right so I, I wouldn't be expecting anything like what i experienced to be honest but okay did, did you were you aware of how much time had passed when you came out of it or what did you think no, it, how long how long did you think you had been under there was once you once i was out of it again my my sober or my reality was sort of mixed with my previous mental like fabrication. And so I would have times in which I really knew what was going on, especially when I was grounded to somebody like my parent and I was talking to them about the situation. And then when they left me to go, they didn't recognize that I was so kind of mentally unstable. And so when they left me to go back to the hotel for the night to let me sleep, my mind just took, it grasped onto everything on its own and it began to create its own reality again. And at that point in time, I, I thought I was under for a month or that I had been homeless for over a year. And because that was actually one of the the memories that I had while I was under the coma. I thought that like, that's why I was in the hospital, that I was this homeless guy. And I had lost my parents a long time ago and that they police found me and brought me there. So it was just, it was a very confusing time for me. Wow. So sometimes, yes, I did remember why and how long I was in there. And sometimes no. Okay. So when you came out of the coma, how much longer were you still, did you remain in the hospital? It was, I think I spent around three days in the ICU. Still, that was when everything was like most intense for me. And I was super paranoid and extremely anxious. But I had my dad there who after that first night and seeing how bad it was for me, stayed with me the content, the duration of the time throughout the night. And then I got moved to another room for about five days. And I was gaining my mind back at that point in time. I couldn't walk when I was in the ICU. And so I was regaining my strength and wanting more than anything to, again, sort of not be locked up and wanting to be free. And during that point in time, the 10 days in the coma and then the other six, I believe it ended up being total outside of it. I had lost 40 pounds. I went from 175 pounds down to 135 pounds and it was skin and bones essentially. Wow. And so walking out, it was a weird time for me. Yeah. It sounds like your parents were, I'm sure they weren't happy and I'm sure they were disappointed, but they sound like they were, they were, they were, they handled it pretty well. Do you think? Yeah, incredibly well. And I mean, they've sort of been a rational source throughout my entire life. They've been fantastic parents. I don't think I could have asked for better ones. And they recognize that to, you can't influence from a distance and to turn on me whenever I was having a, like when I was struggling most, it would have been the fastest way out of my life. 
And so I, they were just there to support me the whole time. And of course, I recognize that they were extremely disappointed. I feel like me as an individual hurt worse to recognize the disappointment and pain in somebody else than it does for me to get yelled at by them. Right. And so, yeah, right. I believe they handled it fantastically. So when you left the hospital, this was a hospital in Fort Lauderdale, right? Yes. Okay. It was, yep, Memorial Regional. And where did you go from there? From there, I left and it was in February, right when I got out, early February. And so it was cold in Florida and I was freezing the entire ride home, but I flew home and it was even colder in Ohio. I went home and I had to stay bundled up in layers and layers of hoodies and I had to take about five baths a day. And just to stay warm because I was, I had lacked so much fat and I lost so much muscle on my body. I also wasn't capable of eating very much because of the surgery they'd done on my stomach. And I was just get full off of everything. So it was hard to regain weight back, but it came. So you, you went back to Ohio, which is where you, that's, mm-hmm. your, that's where your home is. Right. The, the next chapter is the legal aspect of the yes. being charged. What were you actually charged with? Well, in between the the hospital aspect and the legal aspect came with a lot of emotion, a lot of retrying to gain my mental state and physical state. And that took me about a month before I tried to worry about anything legal. And once I got to the point where I like could handle myself physically and mentally, and I was in a state to even communicate with my legal advisor, then... I moved on to the legal aspect of it and that ended up being a six month process around. I don't know. Some of these numbers start to get confusing when you talk about them so much, the durations of time and it's just been a little while, but I think it was around six months in which I was out on bond because my parents bonded me out and working with my legal advisor and end up taking a plea deal to where I went in. And I did get charged with cocaine trafficking between 28 and 200 grams. Okay. And did they charge you with that in Florida or Ohio? They charged me with it in Florida. Okay. And originally, obviously, like I brought more cocaine in than the 200 grams, but with the way that everything worked out with my legal advisor and the prosecutors and how they wanted the evidence to be or how they wanted to charge me, they put me right below it. So because if I'd have been above the 200 gram, then I'd have been serving a seven year minimum mandatory sentence. Wow. So by taking a plea deal, what, what did you agree to? I essentially agreed to uh, 21 months imprisonment and then five years, followed by five years of probation with early termination. And it was, they minimized my probation costs as they recognized a lot of the reason why I was in there in the first place was because I was trying to pay off student loans. And so I'm in Ohio. I got an interstate compact from Florida after serving my time in Florida and I've been home since just basically serving out my probation here. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's because you were charged in Florida. You had to do your time in Florida. Exactly. Okay. And where was it in Florida? Where, what prison? I actually got moved around to a lot of different prisons. Oh. I started in the South Florida Reception Center, which is down in Miami. I went to a work release center in St. Pete. I went to a two prisons in Polk County, one the work prison, one the regular prison, a uh went to stopped through several different prisons one being swanee one being tomoka just all over the place you did the whole florida prison tour 
Yeah, right. <laughs> it well, ended why did they move you around so much? Why not keep you just in one place? Well, they tried to, and the 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 majority of my time was spent between a like a rehab facility in Tomoka, a work release center in Saint Petersburg, Florida, and the reception center down in Miami. But all the other prisons, you as you get transferred to go to different places along the path, you might have to spend a week or. I mean, sometimes more, but they try and get you out of there fairly soon. But sometimes you have to hunker down for a week in whatever prison that you're you're kind of passing through. Right. Okay. And which obviously brings in its own like dangers because the fir- the most dangerous time is whenever you're first being introduced to a new population. But yeah. So yeah, that's what I want to talk about. First of all, how did you, pre- knowing that you were going into prison for an extended period of time, how do you prepare for that mentally or physically? I, you do as much research as you can. Obviously, I knew you would be doing research because that's what you do. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is. It it made things 10 times worse because you deal with all this, all these sources on the internet that make it into this terrible thing. Any documentary you watch on it, you're completely sure you're going to go in there and you're going to get screwed up in some way. Um, And so I was battling one with the information well, the information that I was reading was battling against my experiences from my past, recognizing that everyone dramatizes this world and the things that I had been through in the past that people had always deemed to be harmful to you were always never as bad as what they were originally like portrayed to be. And so I was constantly like trying to deal with my past history, knowing that I could handle any situation going or with all the information that I was getting that said that this is going to be the worst place you could possibly imagine. Can you describe your first day in prison? What was that like? My first day in prison? Well, actually, first you check into the jail. So you get taken from the courtroom and you move, move down into the county jail. And the fir- I spent four days in there. And, of course, you're getting a bunch of information from all sorts of crazy sources as to what prison is going to be like. Usually the guys in jail hadn't been to prison Um, They call it going up the road, which means that you're going to be doing anything. Anyone who has a longer than a one-year sentence goes to prison. Anyone who has less than a one-year sentence stays in the jail. And, of course, right when I walk in, I still have, like, longer hair. Um, I walk in, of course, like, somebody makes a kissy face at me. Like, the very first person I see will be entered into the cell. I was like, great. (laughs) So, But those first couple days, I just met a guy who had a lot of books, and I started reading. My first day in prison was... And even I expected to be like, it. I guess it gave me the impression that it was going to be very violent because I come in there and I start getting screamed at by the guards were made stripped down immediately. Um, and all our stuff is taken from us. We're giving a pair of like blue clothes and we're going through like an orientation. It's just, it's a very depressing time because everybody's going in there for a long time, but you're all getting checked in together, mm-hmm. not knowing what's going to happen to you. The, Next couple of weeks, I feel like were even harder for me because I was placed in a cell in which I didn't have a roommate for the largest amount of time. And I was locked down for a good portion of every single day. And coming from a, the outside where you have all the stimulation from your phone or like your friends or whatever it is, you move into a place where there's nothing. And at least for those first three or four days, it drives you nuts to some extent. You're like, this can't be what it's going to be like for the next year or so. Like how I couldn't, I can't do it. But eventually come like day four or a little further, 
your brain starts to readapt itself to where you're not, you don't need all the stimulation anymore. And you start to, instead of gaining it from external sources, start to delve internally and you use your own imagination to kind of entertain yourself. And eventually I got moved into a place after about three weeks of that got moved into a place where I could start working and I had books and the thing, everything got much easier from that point. But the first like little bit of time where you're dealing with that under stimulation was by far the hardest. Okay. So you would spend most of your time. uh, Did you get to choose your job in prison? No, we had to take a sort of an aptitude test. It was, an intelligence test, an aptitude test, a in an educational test. And based on my scores, they took me in, they actually took me to the warden. And like, we want him to be a law clerk. He's like, how much experience does he have? And my classification officer, who was the head of classification, was like, oh, well, he doesn't have anything, but these are his scores. And he's like, okay, let's, let's have him. <laughs> so I got placed pretty much in the best job right from the get-go uh, because of, obviously, my education. But I was able to go in there and I started learning law. And then they realized that I was going to be moving on to a a different facility uh, sooner than it'd take for me to get my actual certification. And they stuck me as a librarian for the while. Um, So you don't really get to choose your job. They place you based on need for the most part. Mm -hmm. Have have you seen Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. I'm picturing you as the Andy Dufresne. Going in, you know, you're the smart guy, and within a few days, you're the warden's personal assistant or something. You know, it's not. It's. I mean, I guess they're thinking back on it. I never really compared it to that, but there wasn't like I can see that there's definitely an analogy there. Mm-hmm. I got along with all the guards well. Is like just because mainly because I just didn't mess with them. I I minded my own business. I did. I always tried to help out all the guys. It seemed like I ended up being sort of like the prison's personal psychologist as guys would sort of gravitate into my room and just sit there and want to talk for hours. And being a natural extrovert, I thought that I would always be able to do that with a smile on my face. But eventually you just get to the point where it's almost like they're sucking the energy out of you. Mm. And it didn't take long for me to sort of become somewhat introverted while I was in there. Were you ever in fear for your own safety? No. There was times where I was uneasy, don't get me wrong, where you are on edge and you're not entirely sure who the people that you're surrounded with are and what their intentions might be. But I guess I could go back. I think a lot of guys are very fearful in there. But obviously, fear isn't a isn't something that necessarily takes as big a hold in my life, I think, as it does most people. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have tried to swallow a bunch of cocaine packets if it was a very fearful person. But no, I don't think there was. But I think that for the normal individual, that there probably would be times for sure that they would be fearful. Yeah. Did you, I mean, what you hear is that if you're going to go into prison, you want to join forces or join a gang or something so that, Mm. you know, if somebody tries to mess with you, you've got people to protect that's one of the things that I heard I was going to have to do. Uh-huh. And I I don't like that kind of ideology because it pairs you. First off, it's admitting to your own weakness that you need strength in somebody else. And then it's also pitting yourself against a different race or a different like educational background or whatever it is. And that, to me, felt like worth me getting beat up over. Like I would rather get hurt in there not pairing up than 
take that stance and live with it for the rest of my life because that's just not me. Right. Because most of the gangs are racially grouped, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Very much so. And the gangs do exist in there. But, and I think everything depends on whatever prison you're in, but in every prison that I was in, and as a general consensus, I'd say for the state of Florida, at least joining a prison would be the, or joining, I'm sorry, a gang would be probably one of the worst decisions you could possibly make. Hmm. Cause then you, you have some friends, but you immediately have enemies too. Yes, right? exactly. Okay. That's exactly what it is. Okay. And now you're you're being held to certain standards that you may not agree with. You're starting to give up your your own individualized sense of morality for the group morality and that becomes a danger not just physically but on a mental level as well. Is the food really bad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh yeah. Um it's I guess not as bad as what you might think it might be. Again, I like am a fan of pretty much every food here on the outside. I don't think there's really anything I don't like very much, mm -hmm. but there is definitely stuff and mainly it was bad for the texture is if you had some decent cooks working in the kitchen who actually cared about the <laughs> the people that they're serving, you probably would end up with some better meals, but you I, you might get a cookie that's rock hard one day and then it's just completely doughy the next day. Whereas if it was, there was some consistency with the bakers or whatever it was, then you might have some better tasting meals, but the texture for the most part was the biggest problem rather than the mere taste of the food. Are they able to cater to any kind of special diet at all? Yes, they do. Uh, kosher, they would always call kosher early. And I believe, I mean, it pretty much any, any sort of dietary plan that you have religious diets, they'll cater to. If you have any allergies, they'll change that. But yeah, for the most part, if you if you're a normal person without a diet like restriction, you're going to be eating with everybody else. You don't have an option, really. What everybody else to do anything yeah. else? Yep. How long were you in? It ended up being they they have a thing called gain time, where if you behave in prison, then they take a certain percentage off your sentence, but you get maxed out at a certain point. So you have to serve in Florida at least eighty five percent of your time. And I obviously got all my game time. I didn't get in trouble at all. I was in there. And so I ended up serving 85% of 21 months, which equated to about a year and a half. Okay. Yep. But I was lucky enough to get placed into some different programs, community programs for being lower custody for the majority of my sentence. I started out in the reception center, which is max security because everyone gets transferred through there. And so I learned a lot of what it was like to be in a max security prison from the get-go but once i was i was always community custody really and so i got to move into a place where i could work for a little bit and then a place where i was sort of in like a drug rehab facility for a little while too so you were in florida in prison at various prisons but always in florida and your family for the yes. most part is in ohio did you were they able to visit you every once in a while or how often did that happen yeah and this this goes back in again to how much i appreciate my parents and my family but I don't know. I'd want to say my mom came down to visit me seven times or so. My dad came down pretty close to that. My aunts and uncles came down. My grandparents came down many times. Uh, my brothers and sister came down several times. I had probably 14 or 15 friends from home come down and fly and see me. My girlfriend came down quite a few times. I was pretty busy for the most part. So, this is a whole different aspect here. Your girlfriend, how did she react yeah. to the news or did she know you were going to do this? Did you tell her ahead of time? 
This is, I know, this is the interesting part of the entire thing as well is I, I didn't actually know her while I was doing any of this. I probably would not have done this if I'd had somebody else that I was risking their, their life with as well. And I met her while I was out on bond at a music festival called Bonnaroo. We just happened to stumble upon each other in the woods and hit it off from there and maintained contact the entire time, saw each other before I went into prison. And we didn't originally plan on it being anything while I was in there because, I mean, we couldn't connect physically. And so we kind of maintained just our connection. And it got to the point as we continued through the process and we were writing letters back and forth and calling whenever I could in certain locations, calling every day, uh, her coming down and seeing me, we recognized that even without the physical aspect that we clicked so well on a mental level that it was worth kind of just waiting until I got out to see what would happen. Or And whenever we, whenever I got out, it's been as good as what we imagined it to be. And we've been, I don't know, is we've been extremely tight since it's it's been nothing but good which is kind of counterintuitive thinking about a long distance relationship especially with somebody in prison and i don't know it just i understand from an outside perspective how foolish that seemed at the time but it's been nothing but great for me and her it's, so that's interesting you know if you guys yeah. end up getting married or spend the rest of your life together chances are you've already right. gone through the worst part of it right Oh, definitely. Yeah. And you know, like, unfortunately, a lot of relationships, you get so quickly into it physically that it's a mass to the things you don't like about the person mentally. And so we were able to get that out of the way so that when we ever did be able to reconnect that we it's been it's been great from there. What What's yeah. the what's the funniest or, or maybe better phrase, the most unusual thing you saw happen or while you were in prison? Hmm. <laughs> That's a hard question. It seems like I was I was always seeing funny things. Well, you, you don't have to limit it to just one story either. Oh, I know, I know. It seemed like all the time I was seeing funny things because of the sheer stupidity that existed within there. And I'd always told some of my like the guys that I would talk to that like if there was a comedian from the outside who could just spend one week in prison, he'd have material for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> but to think back on any individual circumstances is harder. I guess there was one time that I was in an argument with some of the different prisoners about how they were saying these rats were roaming around the outside of the kitchen and they were huge and they were probably showing something about the size of a loaf of bread. I'm like, there's no way there's a rat that's that big, just its body. And so we got in an argument for a while, but eventually one time, one of them comes running out and a guard inside screams and he's like, I told you there was rats that big. And I was like, I got to see this. I go in there and there's a possum wandering around <laughs> on the inside. Like, you didn't know it was yeah. not a rat? Yeah, they. Yeah, exactly. They believed that the possum was the rat. Wow. Well, they kind of um, look like rats, sort of. Yeah, they do. But I don't know. It's just <laughs> there was all sorts of little funny stuff like that that would happen all the time. But there's nothing. And again, it has to do. I think you bond humor level or you bond. um your your sense of humor matched with people that you're intellectually similar to. And so to be in somewhere where there wasn't like, not that there was dumb people in there all the time, but that like, I just didn't find people that were from my walk of life or that like had my education. And so it was harder for me to find somebody to bond with on a humor level. And so I felt like I did a lot of time not laughing while I was in there. Okay. But 
Are, are there good people in prison? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's not many innocent people as far as the law goes, but there are a lot of good people. I don't think that you're, I think there's a difference between morality and law and law is sort of an attempt to match the morality of the society at the time. And at one point in time, plenty of things that were unlawful were moral. For example, I mean, slavery was lawful, but it was immoral. Uh, the right for women to vote was unlawful, but it, it's moral. And so I don't think that those things necessarily match. It's just the attempt of the society to be able to match them. And so I think morality, we oftentimes will say for the we match that or or make that synonymous to good. And so I think there's a lot of guys in there, for example, that are not like morally incompetent people, but end up in prison because they chose to do something that like was considered unlawful at the time. Mm -hmm. Drugs being a big one of those. Um, but obviously there's different individual ones. There's a lot of people, especially like some of the really good people I saw in there were in there for DUI accidents. And it's not like that person set out to do harm. I recognize that we have to, we have to have a system that punishes somebody based on the consequences rather than the motives, at least to some degree. And so like there needs to be some reconciliation for what they did, but it's unfortunate that some of these guys can set out with the ideas like, Oh, I'm just going to go have a good night with my buddy and end up serving 10 years or more. So there's lots of good people in there who made mistakes. There's a lot of evil people in there too. That's Yes. I would assume so. Yeah. What if this whole thing had been successful? You know, that would have paid off. What were your, what was your total student loan amount? It is around 130,000. Okay. It's down now from there because I've been working and I worked some before and my parents have been working with it while I was in prison and I'm paying them back, but okay. it was yeah, under 30. And, and what did you expect to net from this, uh, from this venture? Around 50,000. Okay. So you would have still yes. had, you know, you'd, you'd knocked off a little more than a third of it. Would you have done it again yep. if this had worked? Um, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. I, I know that everybody is thinking, of course, and that's a possibility, but you know, I also, the, what I'm thinking is if, if, if you were that confident before you did it the first time, you know, doing it successfully, yeah, after. that just added to your confidence saying, Hey, I can do right. this. Right. I guess my, my, uh, I, my evidence comes from some of the past scenarios in which I did do something illegal and I can't get into exactly like why I did or what I did, but I have done stuff in the past that was successful. And for whatever reason, like I do things merely for the experience of it. It's I can do it. And even if it made me money and it was successful, I didn't continue to exacerbate that, that mode of gaining like met or money. Um, I just did it because I wanted to see that I could do it. I wanted to like know that I was capable. And then I moved on from that. And there's actually not even, it's not even just a one-time occurrence that I'm thinking back in my memory. It's like many different times that I've attempted stuff, sort of conquered it in my own life and then moved on from it. So you're the type. And so it sounds like you'd be the type of person that you could go into a casino and wager a big amount and win a huge amount and then say, okay, I'm ahead. Let's just leave. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. Of course. And, and in fact, I actually move on beyond there and I don't like gambling at all because it feels like an insult to my own intelligence to be able to like go in and pull a, pull a machine that I know the odds are against me and I still keep putting money into it. I guess I do, but I would, I mean, I'd be able to go in with some friends and like just taking a set amount of money, but it would kill me throughout the entire time. And I think that it would still bug me, honestly, even if I won mm-hmm. money. So, but yeah, definitely. Okay. What, how is it, what's been your experience now that you're out and you're working to, to be able to find work with a felony conviction on your record? Yeah. Uh, as of now, I mean, I, I found a job in the oil industry, but it's not an engineering job. And it's, I think it's very easy for a person who has a felony to use that as I'm not saying that there's no, not that the felony doesn't hinder them at all because it does, but I think it's very easy for us to use it as sort of an excuse to not get a certain position or get a job or become this person. Um, in general, people like giving each other second chances and I think that sometimes we can say, I didn't get this job because I have a felony and that's the only reason why. We use it as an excuse to, or a psychological barrier from fulfilling our potential. And so I haven't been able to get an engineering job yet, but I am hesitant to say that that's because of my felony just yet. Okay. I'm still trying though. Has anyone else in your family been to prison? No, actually, none of them have even been to jail. Uh, I live in a very tight knit community. I think I maybe have like no one or two friends that I've had school with in distant ways that have gone to jail even, but I don't, I haven't known really anybody to go to prison and certainly not in my family. Has it, have you gotten any kind of feeling that you're kind of the black sheep now or it sounds like it doesn't like they've accepted what you did and yeah, I have. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's something that like, I know that people have in the back of their heads, but it's not like they ever treat me different. They are curious about it and they're understanding sort of why I did it. And they know me sort of on a deeper level and know that just because I did something, I, I might have done something bad, but it doesn't make me a bad person. And my family has watched me, an extended family has watched me grow up and they know who I am as a person and know that I guess my heart's in the right place, even though my mind can get a little bit ahead of myself, I guess. That's good. That's a way to look at it. It's like, you know, what you did isn't necessarily who you are, you know? Yes, exactly. In psychology, that's called the fundamental attribution error. And it's basically saying that if somebody does something clumsy, it doesn't like that it makes them a clumsy person. That's not necessarily true. It just circumstances can determine certain things and it doesn't necessarily constitute that person as a whole. Yeah. We all make mistakes. Some, some just on a more grand scale than, than others. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Exactly. What's, what's your long-term plan now or what do you see moving ahead now? Yeah. Um, I guess I, I'm going to start by just working and working and working. I work probably 14 to 16 hours a day, depending on where the location is. And I'm working seven days a week and usually for like about a month straight or more at a time. And so that, although it's taking up my entire life, it's still a step in the right direction. And I'm 
basically making my money off of the amount of time that I'm working. And so giving up this portion of my life, at least to catch myself up to help pay my parents back and get started on my student loans is all like, it's what's happening immediately. But at the same time, I am not, not looking for an engineering job. I'm still looking to try and use my education to get myself into a place where I don't have to work so hard. But the goal is to be able to free myself of these student loans. And once I do that, I, the world kind of opens up again, not in the illegal side of it, where I feel like I had my fair share of it, but in the legal aspects in which there's no limit on the amount of things that you can try and do in your entire life. And there's no, um, there's no finite amount of experiences to have. And so I guess I kind of want to understand them all. I just kind of want to piece the world together. I would love to check back with you in like in a year or maybe five years and see, see where you're at. That would be, yeah. That would be, interesting. yeah. I mean, that, that would be fun. I'm always down. It's, I don't even know where, like I look back a year from now and I mean, I guess I was sitting in prison at that point in time, but two years from that point, it's like, it seems like a year at a time, you never really know where I'm going to end up or what I'm going to be doing. It's, but one thing I am sure of is that I constantly push myself into uncomfortable environments and where that leads me, who knows. Did, did anything good come out of this whole experience? Oh yeah. Boundless, boundless good. And that it, again, you thrive where you get out of your comfort zone. You begin to see what life is really like or the value in being human when those emotions are flowing at their most or where those experiences are one in a once in a lifetime. And so I got for that reason to see aspects of humanity that I didn't get to see. I got to learn new things about the world that I didn't know before. I got to understand pain in a more intimate level than I had ever done in the, in the past. And also the joy, the joy of getting out and of seeing the people in my life that care about me and all that. So even when it seems like a completely negative experience, they're still positive if you can see it. I guess that's a byproduct of being sort of an optimist as I am. But I think to have to, to see this as an entirely negative circumstance would be completely ignoring all the, the all the really good things that did yeah, come out. Then of it, it would just be a waste of a year or two of your life. That yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Luke, if someone wants to contact you or has more questions for you or anything, is um, how, how can they get in touch with you? Well, I think you have my email and you can always provide that to them if they want it. What I'll do is uh, in the show notes for this episode, I'll put that in there. So if they want to go and look at the show notes for this episode, then uh, they can contact you by email. That sounds good. Okay. All right. I'm I'm always checking it, and so it I'll be in touch shortly after if they do email me. Good. All right. Well, Luke, yeah. it's been really interesting to talk to you about this and hear the story. And what I really like is the fact that um, obviously you're this one decision. You're not a career criminal. You're you you know <laughs> it's one bad decision, and now you're you're obviously back on the right track and heading in the right direction. So it's really good to see. Trying to trying to yeah, I appreciate that, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe and that way you'll never miss an episode. 
you can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is whatwasthatlike.com. You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like?